the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I'm Kevin Randall. I will be joined by Don Schmidt in just a few moments. We were discussing the Roswell case last week, and we thought we would change up and move into other realms of the UFO phenomenon this week. Uh, we thought we'd gone too deep into Roswell, and interestingly, I got a number of emails saying that they love the Roswell stuff, but we're going to stay away from it because we did an awful lot of that last week. I think I'll talk a little bit about the elephant in the room, which is Tony Begalia's latest um, article on his website that suggests that the government, the U.S. government, has admitted they have UFO debris and they have been farming it out to various industries to analyze it and uh, figure out how to make it and all of that sort of thing. And I watched a um, report by John Greenwald just this morning, just, a, just not that long ago, where he looked at the article in depth. And I'll put a link to John's article in my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com for those of you who would like to see his analysis of it. And I think the problem is when we look at what uh, Tony wrote, it's a little bit of an exaggeration. I think he reads too much into what he got. He had made a number of FOIA requests uh, three years ago, and he finally got a response to them. And in this response, he got four or five technical articles that dealt with analysis of possible threats, um, how the U.S. US military, I think it's the U.S. government, U.S. military, could respond to those threats or de defeat those threats. But it really wasn't an analysis of recovered alien debris, as Tony read into the articles, but uh, an attempt to anticipate what might be found in the uh, future, what might be some sort of a threat that needed to be countered in the future, and how we would respond to that. And I think John's John Greenwald's analysis pretty well spells that out for those of you who would like to look at it. I know Tony, Tony sometimes tends to read things into the material he gets that really aren't there. John said that he had done a search of the five documents. I think it's 147 pages of material that he received, that, that Tony received. And he found the word extraterrestrial only one time. And that actually referred to humans building structures on other planets, extraterrestrial structures on other planets, and a way of using some kind of foam developed from the local environment that would strengthen the walls and save the um, necessity necessity of, of um, taking that material to the other planet with them. So I think Tony's analysis, and I, I kind of agree with John Greenwald here, I think Tony's analysis is looking a little bit beyond what is actually written in the documents. But for those of you who'd like to see uh, Tony's article, I'll also put a link in my blog about that as well, so you can look at his article, read what it says. I think John and his uh, response also has a link to the article, so you'll be able to read both um, Tony's article and John's response to this. But this may blow up into something a little bit bigger, and by that I mean the news media, which now has a habit of not bothering to do any type of in-depth research that doesn't bother to ask 
what I would think of as germane questions uh, would report on this as if it's proven fact. And I think Tony's article is more speculative than it is factual in, in that respect. So we have to watch out for that. And I think this will all kind of blow over in a couple of days. But it relates back to the Bigelow um, uh, investigations into these sorts of things and the ATIP program and all of that. So that'll be explained at length in those articles and you can get an idea of where they are. The other thing I kind of wanted to talk about, or a couple of things I wanted to talk about, and one of them is kind of an annoyance to me, and I've mentioned this before, I believe, and that is people who don't like your particular, I don't want to say politics, I'm, I'm thinking more of um, theories on ufology. If I come out and say something negative about a competitor, another researcher, uh, and I think specifically things like uh, of, of um, Philip Corso and his his book on the Roswell case, which is, again, more, more fiction than it is fact, um, that annoys some people, and so they look for my books and then give them very low ratings. Then they don't read them. They just don't like my attitude. And I, I kind of bothers me um, that they don't bother to, to do the research to find out whether I'm right or wrong. They just they just negatively impact the ratings of the books. And in the world today with our cancel culture, I think we're obligated, if we're going to say something negative, rate something negatively, that we're obligated to take a look at that material to see if it is accurate or not. And if it's accurate to reassess our evaluation. I know on one of the, um, one of the quick reviews of Roswell in the 21st century, the guy's whole response was, there, no, there are no aliens, this book is not very good. And the point is, if you'd read the book, I think you'd have come away with a different attitude because of the uh, content of that book. I look at the Roswell case as a cold case. Let's go back and review the evidence. Let's go back and look at what the witnesses said, what kind of documentation. And if you do that, you find out that the case as it stands today in 2021 is not nearly as robust as it was back in 1991. Um, because of what we've learned since then. Uh, we've learned that some of the witnesses we thought were reliable were not. We've seen how some of the witnesses tended to embellish their stories or plug them into places where they were not. And I think we need to look at all of that if we're going to understand not only the Roswell case, but all sorts of uh, UFO investigations. On the other side of that coin, the the Socorro case, Lonnie Zamora's landed craft in Socorro, New Mexico, which was I did in my book, um, Encounters in the Desert, and Ben Moss just did a book about it as well. I think that case is stronger than it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago when we started looking into it. And it's based on the discovery that there were additional witnesses and there was additional documentation. In the Roswell case, everything we've come up with in the way of documentation, the Barney Barnett diary, for example, turned out not to contain anything that would be helpful to us. Barney Barnett wasn't where he would have had to be to see the crash saucer on the dates he supposedly saw it, that sort of thing. The Jesse Marcel journal turned out not to be written by Jesse Marcel. And now the speculation is written by Patrick Saunders, but it's based on uh, two sentences I think he wrote in the on the flyleaf of one of the books that Don and I had written, uh, where he said, this is the truth, and I never told anybody anything and signed his name to it, which was a nice piece of documentation, but it would have been much, much better if it had been written in 1947 and not 1991. Uh, so we look at all of that. The um, only document that we have been able to locate that deals with it directly, other than newspaper articles, is the FBI telex which doesn't tell us much of anything and, and harkens back to the idea that it might have been a balloon, but the telex says, but, but contact with Wright-Patterson said it wasn't. And then we have the Ramey memo, and we've taken that as far as we're going to go with that. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely positive. I know that Gene Cooper and some of the others working with me in Fort Worth uh, last year suggested that AI might be a way of, of resolving what the, the, the document actually says by applying something that would be completely unbiased to an attempt to determine where the text was going and that sort of thing. But on the Ramey memo, 
Um, there's no security markings. There's nothing that, that suggests it's a military document that I've seen, and I've made this point a number of times, that it looks more like a teletype that came over the, the wires of the newspaper, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram specifically, and was brought to Ramey's office by J. Bond Johnson, the photographer. Although Johnson originally said that he might have brought it in, he, he later said no, he didn't when he understood the implications of that. So the documentation that we've kind of held out for is not brought us the kind of uh, explanations or the kind of evidence that we, we had been searching for. And that, that's kind of unfortunate. We haven't found any, any letters. We haven't found any diaries, any journals, anything that relates to that time. Everything we have appears to have been written with a few very minor exceptions after uh, the publication of the Roswell incident in 1980. And I think Inez Wilcox, the sheriff's wife, who wrote an article about three years in the county jail or four years in the county jail about their being the sheriff of, of Chavez County. And she had written an article about that and later on added a page to it. And it says add A uh, that relates to what the sheriff supposedly observed and happened in the sheriff's office during the uh, Roswell events of, of 1947, but it was written after the fact. If we, if we could have proven it was written before the fact, that would have been wonderful. But, but the only thing we have is a statement made by um, Lydia Schleppi, who was a teletape operator in the radio station in Albuquerque that owned KGFL. And she was talking to Johnny McBoyle, or she was typing what Johnny McBoyle was sending her to send out over the wire, and it was interrupted and uh, said, stop this transmission. And the interesting thing is we can document it in 1976 because there's two paragraphs in an article in a Saga magazine, a Saga UFO report that uh, Lydia Schleppi mentions this event that took place. So we know who she was, we know what was going on, we know it was 1947 and it, and it predates the, the Roswell incident and Jesse Marcel talking about uh, what he had seen in 1978. So we have a little bit of that. But uh, the Roswell case is certainly not as robust as it had once been. And I think that's unfortunate because too many of the witnesses have just plugged themselves into the event. And what turned my thinking around on some of this was a book called Stolen Valor about all these people claiming to be Vietnam veterans who were not. And I was astonished at the people who would be making up their tales of of heroic combat in, in Vietnam who didn't serve in Vietnam, didn't serve in the military taking their cues from what the news media had been reporting, which unfortunately a lot of times about the Vietnam War was also inaccurate, and the movies that have been published, movies that have been filmed out of Hollywood, it's based on the Hollywood perception of the war as opposed to what really went on. Uh, so you have to take a look at all of that. And one of the things I have done just recently, I've created a blog uh, at www.vietnamgroundzero.blogspot.com, and it's linked on my other blog as well, that deals with my experiences in Vietnam based on uh, the letters I sent home, which I happen to have, uh, articles I wrote back in the early 1970s about my experiences and that sort of thing, so that it looks at... Um, what it was like for me in Vietnam. The other interesting thing, it says on the blog that it's my mostly true experiences. And the way I say mostly true is because a lot of times I'm trying to access memories that are 50 years old now. And the one thing that, that astonished me, I do not remember ever eating a meal in the 187th Assault Helicopter Company mess hall. Obviously, I ate something somewhere, but I do not remember eating in, in the mess hall. I remember eating in the 116th Assault Helicopter Company mess hall, but I do not remember that. And I can cannot for the life of me tell you what it looked like other than the outside of the building. I do know that I would buy a pizza that, from the officer's club. They sell it for a buck and uh, put it in a toaster oven. And I, I ate a number of those at the time, but I do not remember eating anything there. Uh, I'm going to break away here because we've got to take a break, which we sometimes do. I will be joined by Don Schmidt in just a moment. We will be talking about UFOs. We'll be talking about Don's favorite cases. We may talk about Tony Begalia's article if Don has uh, bothered to or had a chance to read it. I shouldn't say bothered to, but had a chance to read it. And I also wanted to mention there are other fine programs about the paranormal on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. So take a look at the listings at the Exxon website. I'm sure you're going to find something that will excite you. And I will be back right after this with Don Schmidt, I promise. 
And I am now here with Don Schmidt, as I promised just a moment ago, promised just a moment ago. Some For some reason, I can't speak the English language anymore. Don, welcome back to A Different Perspective. Always good to be back with you, Kevin. How are you? I'm fine. Um, we talked an awful lot about Roswell last time, and I promised we wouldn't talk about it this time, so we won't. <laughs> okay. That's Although... Oh, oh, see, he's going to break his door. <laughs> although, although, well, Tony Begalia just published an article about um, memory metal and this sort of thing that he uh, claims now is an admission by the U.S. government that they have uh, had debris from crashed UFOs. Not necessarily Roswell, but debris from crashed UFOs. I remember a number of stories where metallic debris has re been recovered, there was a, a, a case in Washington in 1952, Washington, D.C. area, where something apparently fell from a UFO and was recovered, um, and that sort of thing. And we've got landing trace cases like Socorro oh, and that and sort of thing. Certainly the most famous you know, trace case of all would be Ubatuba in Brazil. And, um, you know, they're still working on that. Uh, there's still samples that between uh, Peter Sturrock and Jacques Vallée and even Mark Rodiger and Mike Swords now. But, but the problem the, the problem with Ubatuba, which was, a for those who are not familiar with it, was an explosion of a craft near Ubatuba, Brazil. The debris rained down into the ocean and onto a beach and was recovered. But we don't know who picked it up. We don't know where the debris that is now in the hands of Peter Sturrock and some of the others, what eventually it came from, from Coral Lorenzen. We don't know how it got to from the beach to the reporter who got it to Olivia Fontes, who got it to the Lorenzens. So the chain of custody is broken. The chain of custody and the problem also, the fact that it's been now almost 70 years and the thought that uh, we don't, yeah, that chain of custody, we don't know where... Uh, we know at a certain point it was with the Lorenzans as far as with APRO. And even then for a while, nobody knew where it was. Um, it, um, I don't know that I would even consider it reliable any longer. Well, I would agree with that. But Tony, Tony talked about um, uh, the government admitting that they had uh, UFO debris. Um, I know Jean, Jean, John Greenwald just posted a 30-minute video about that, suggesting that when you read what he wrote and the documents that he received, doesn't really relate to that. And I know you've had an opportunity to read Tony's uh, analysis. What did you make of it? The problem with any, and, and you remember, especially the beginning phase of the Roswell investigation, we were filing a lot of FOIA requests. And we became quickly disheartened by the fact that, to me, it's just a black hole. Everything goes in, nothing comes out. And as we would learn, that was exactly the same situation that even Heine complained about, even with Blue Book, that everything came in, nothing went out. And so anytime there's any form of release or disclosure of this sort, my, my radar goes up. The first thing I think of is, is some form of red flag or just some... Uh, snafu that somebody jumped the gun and released something inadvertently, or even just switched something over from another unrelated topic altogether and uh, shoehorned it into this situation and uh, has nothing to do with UFOs. Well, that's the, that's the point that John made, that there was nothing in the documents as he went through them carefully that, that led us to the idea that it related to UFOs, that there was any kind of metallic debris that had been um, recovered and that it was more of a um, uh, uh, analysis of what threats the U.S. government or the U.S. military might might uh, face in the future. There was nothing to suggest extraterrestrials, UFOs, UAPs, or anything else. I think that Tony was premature in his conclusions. Would you agree? I would agree. And that's, the, that's been the problem for all these years that for at times, even myself included, where when we rush to judgment, when we are just so overly passionate about finally, you know, coming up with any form of conclusive proof that we fall, even for a government document, and God, that was certainly the case with MJ-12, and now you're talking 33 years ago, and we were the ones who, you know, stood for, uh, you know, firm as to uh, 
First of all, the documents did not match what the eyewitness testimony uh, is describing. And, uh, and as you, you know, demonstrated more than anyone that the documents just did not pass muster as to their, their format, their, uh, their very uh, textual contact that um, it, uh, it's always buyer beware. Any time the government provides you with anything, as far as I'm concerned, run the other way. But I think the, the analysis here, I think the point to be made here is Tony was a little bit um, enthusiastic about his conclusions, and I don't think they really derive from the documents he received. He received exactly what he asked for. And there was, um, as John Greenwald pointed out, and I mentioned earlier, only one mention of extraterrestrial in the, uh, the 147 pages. Didn't mention UFOs, didn't mention aliens, didn't mention bodies, didn't mention anything, but one mention of extraterrestrial, and it referred to building... Uh, structures on another planet, which right, would be right. Earthmen building those structures. So it, it just really didn't follow. Let's move on. Let's be, well, go ahead. You were going to say. I believe they're also tying this into the timing as far as that Luis, Luis Elizondo is constantly hinting at uh, being in possession of wreckage, of physical material, of physical evidence. And uh, he won't cross that line. And yet he has uh, reporters, you know, okay, do we or don't we? And he kind of smirks and he has that, that smile like, well, if only you knew. And I think uh, in, in many respects, they're playing games with us right now. And all the more reason that uh, we have to be extra cautious. Well, let's, let's uh, move into a different arena. And uh, what I'm thinking is, I think the the audience knows some of my favorite UFO cases. What what do you think is one or two of the best cases for proving any kind of alien uh, visitation? Well, I, I think you would agree with me that Socorro, New Mexico, in April of 64, stands, it, it certainly is one of the top 10. And the fact that it was at the time that Blue Book was still active, but it was bigger than Blue Book, as you know. The fact that they called in the FBI, the fact that uh, they called in as far as the local military, like from Holloman Air Force Base, the fact that they sent well, Heineken. Well, let me let me ask you a question. Did they really call in the FBI or did it just happen that the FBI guy, the agent who lived in Socorro, uh, heard about it, as did the um, the, the Army Captain Holder, who mm -hmm. was stationed at, at White Sands, um, just happened to be there and they got in touch with them. They weren't really called in. If you understand this, the, the fine line I'm walking here. Right, right. And, and that's often the case, um, such as there was a Boeing uh, crash investigator who just happened to live. Uh, he had a, a home east of Roswell in Hobbs and also one in Texas. And he just happened to be passing through and he you know, told his, his family stories about uh, you know, some of the rumors that he was hearing while passing through Roswell at that time. So, uh, yes, I mean, people, uh, as we know, just happening to be at the right place right, at the right time. Uh, but nonetheless, they all provided opinion. They all, you know, provided their, their expertise as to other possibilities. And the fact that they all came up short of anything terrestrial, of anything uh, prosaic. Uh, as we both know that uh, Hector Quintanilla, as far as the last director of Blue Book, I mean, he went out of his way trying to prove that it was a balloon of some sort or uh, any, uh, you know, errant testing from White Sands, any of the surrounding uh, test facilities, and came up empty-handed. And well, I, know I, that, I know that in his book, his uh, autobiography, uh, he said that he was, uh, when he went to Socorro, he went to Alamogordo, and, and tried to find what Lonnie Zamora had seen or if there was any kind of testing going on. He couldn't find any secret projects and he had the top secret clearances necessary to at least let him know that it was going on. Um, he said, well, he had to mark it unidentified because he could not come up with any other solution. Precisely. And I think that's an, that's an important Very point important. for the Socorro case. And we're talking about someone as far as, uh, as, as an officer in the Air Force, would have been the civilian equivalent of Philip J. Class at that time. I mean, Quintanella, you know, as Heineck would say, jumped through hoops when he could explain any of the reports. 
But then Heineck was the same way, even at, with, with Socorro. Uh, as he would say, he made every effort to try to prove that this was a hoax because it was too good to be true. And he could not do that. Well, it's interesting that you say that uh, Quintanella was sort of the civilian version of Philip Klass, because at the time of the Socorro landing, the uh, Philip mm-hmm. Klass had come out with his uh, plasma story. That's his correct. idea that these were free-floating plasmas that that would ignite or or glow for some reason, and and uh, I noticed going through the blue book files that Quintanella used that explanation a number of times um, to to explain sightings that were otherwise inexplicable, and I thought it was kind of funny that he jumped on that bandwagon. I was uh, I, I knew a uh, an astronomer or a physicist at uh, University of Nebraska in Omaha, I believe it was. And I was working on the Minot case where they had all the sightings uh, over a short period of time, radar sightings, visual sightings, and that sort of thing. Yeah, infiltrations over the base, right. Yeah, and I, I asked him about that. And what I suddenly realized is, yes, you have ionization in the atmosphere, but you have to have some other mechanism to make it glow. And if it was any kind of regular event, you, you'd be seeing it around airports and airfields all the time, and you just never do. Correct, correct. And, and so that kind of shot down, for me at least, a class's explanation and, and then takes out um, some of Quintanella's explanations as well. well. And as we both know that uh, the, the moment that the witness or witnesses start describing under intelligent control as though it was piloted, as though there was something acting from within, that certainly, you know, dissolves any type of plasma or moon dog or sun dog or uh, anything of that sort. But but when you brought up class and, and as you went through that section in your own book and, and, and one of classes, you know, standard ploys that there was a monetary gain at stake that whether it was establishing a tourist attraction or, uh, you know, somebody was going to profit from making this into a, a landmark event. And the claim that the mayor of Socorro at that time owned the very land that this took place on, which turned out to be totally erroneous, not the case. But it's interesting. It's also interesting, and I know Jerry Clark fell into that trap as well, because in his massive encyclopedia mentions the idea that the mayor owned the land where the object supposedly landed. And the idea was to make it a tourist attraction. So the land would become valuable. Yeah. Uh, and as we both know, it, the, the, the site is pristine. It is still vacant after all these years. There's not a landmark. There's nothing out there to indicate what it had, except the stone clusters that are still there. Well, and, and, and it's interesting. Stone. It's just interesting that, that I, I, I kind of permeates the field that somebody will make a claim like, well, the mayor owned the land. And everybody says, oh, OK, assuming that he got the evidence from the courthouse or the tax records or something. And nobody follows up. The same thing happened with Robert Willingham, the guy who claimed to seen the crash at Del Rio, Texas. Claimed he was an Air Force colonel, claimed he did this, claimed he did that. And it wasn't wasn't until 2010 that I bothered to look at his records. And and discovered he wasn't an Air Force officer, he wasn't a colonel, and that he probably invented the entire tale. Um, I'm gonna have to take a break here, I see, by the clock on the wall, which is actually sitting and on my not talking about Roswell, my God. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, when we come back, I'm going to get on to talk about some other famous cases that we probably haven't discussed much on this program, because I think we need to look beyond Roswell, beyond Socorro, beyond Level Land to some of the other cases that are maybe not as well known, but are certainly as interesting and filled with different forms of evidence, different chains of custody, different chains of evidence. So when we come back, I'll ask Don about that specifically. And uh, I just do want to thank um, everybody who's uh, bought a copy of the Best of Project Blue Book. Uh, Rated on uh, Amazon if you got a chance. And this will give you an idea of some of the other great cases that are out there. We will be back right after this with Don Schmidt. So please stick around. Thank you. 
I am still here with Don Schmidt. We are practicing social distancing, which I say frequently, just because I like to uh, prove that we're doing all doing our part. Uh, when we went away, we had we talked about Socorro being a very very good, very solid case, even though there's basically one witness to it, but there's certainly indications of others who had talked to the police, talked to the Air Force, that somehow their names and everything has gotten lost in the past. But that those are well-known cases. And I was wondering, Don, is there, uh, are there cases that you find as robust as Socorro or Leveland um, that may be not as well-known that we, that we maybe should take another look at? But of course, but uh, allow me just to ask you a question quickly. Uh, La Madera, which happened the very next night, just 100 miles to the north. Um, I remember a discussion with Ted Phillips years ago. And, and Phillips, who accompanied Heineck back to Socorro some years after Blue Book. And then they made it a point, according to Phillips, they also went up to La Madera and they spoke to some of the witnesses there. And according to Ted, Heineck was convinced that it was, it was one and the same vehicle. Did you look into La Madera at all in researching uh, Socorro? Absolutely. I thought it was an important case. I thought the Air Force explanation that it was boys burning trash right, in that river at a bay. dump yeah. was, was ridiculous. And, and one of the important things of La Madera that, that gets kind of lost in this is the witness reported on the landing site a melted pop bottle, a melted right. Coke bottle. Correct. And we get back to Socorro, and there's two guys from Dubuque, Iowa, who claimed they had been driving through Socorro when this took place, and there was a big story about him in the Dubuque newspaper. And one of them said, yeah, and there was a melted pop bottle. We saw a melted pop bottle. I'm thinking, yeah, they got that from Lod Madera. They didn't get it from Socorro. Right, right. Uh, which suggested to me they were making up their tale. But it seemed to be an interesting case as well, and I was astonished that when Heineck attempted to get Quintanella, or who was ever running his uh, contract in at, at that time, would not allow him to go there to, to interview those witnesses and talk to them about it. And yes. I mean, it's not yes. that big a deal. And Socorro, I, I Kirkland Air Force Base in Albuquerque is like halfway between the two points. So it wouldn't have been that big of a deal for Heineck to remain a day or two and talk to those witnesses. But yes. they said, no, he couldn't do it. So yes, I do, uh, in uh, Encounter in the Desert, there's a, there is a long discussion of the Lombardera case. And it's, a, and, it, and it's an interesting case, a fascinating case. And again, the fact that it happens the very next evening, so. Yes, yes. And there's, a, there's, other, there's other sightings around there. Yes, um, I think yes. Jerry Clark reports on an NCO who was repairing his car some three or four hours after the landing, after the case took off and, and saw an object in the air, and that case has been reported as well. So when you, I guess when you look at the whole of the Socorro case, uh, you get not only Lonnie Zamora's impressions, you find out that people did call the police station and it's documented, they called police station with their sightings before Lonnie Zamora went out. And then you find other sightings from around that area in the hours afterwards as well. Uh, it becomes a much stronger case than than we had originally thought. So yes, La Madera fits into that very very nicely. And I, I, I certainly would, would wholeheartedly agree. Uh, are, are we to assume that Blue Book did not investigate anything beyond Socorro, and that these other reports may have gone on to Holloman or even Kirkland at that time, and that some uh, FOIA requests might. Uh, free up some of these old cases that were never part of Blue Book when it was declassified. Well, I think you've, you've got to find the, the repository agency. And by that, I mean, I know as an intelligence officer, in the way the, um, the office was run, the, the problem was you had material you had to deal with on a daily basis, material you had to deal with on a weekly basis, this, is, this sort of thing. But your files were set up to get rid of things that were over three or six months old that did not relate to the operation of your office. And so we routinely destroyed materials that were not relevant to what what we had to, what we were doing. What I'm saying here is I think that, that people at Holloman or people at Kirtland may have had a bigger role in the investigations of those sightings 
but that material would have eventually been sent to either a higher headquarters for review um, or it would have been destroyed because it was no longer relevant to the operation, the, their operation at those specific bases. So you've got to figure out where it would have gone. Right, and, and, and of course, the idea is it should have gone to, to Blue Book. And yet those cases aren't there. Uh, and one would think that Quintanilla would have put the word out that anything else would come directly to his attention. But then beyond him, I would imagine that even the DOD would have been monitoring the situation because Socorro was a case that could have gotten out of hand. And, and the information got out rapidly, and I, I was astonished at how fast it got into the news media, given where Socorro is and the, the media outlets available in 1964 in that area. It seemed the Lorenzans knew about it um, almost immediately and had to postpone their trip to Socorro from Tucson. I, I believe they lived in Tucson. At, yeah, they lived in Tucson at the time that happened. Um until Sunday, this happened. It happened on a um, a um, Friday night, and they right. didn't get there till Sunday. But the point is, they they knew about it on Saturday, and people were talking about it on Saturday. And I'm not sure how the the information got out that quickly. It uh, was uh, it was unfortunate that as the other police officers arrived on the scene, that they obliterated supposedly uh, the footprints that were originally there from the two figures that uh, Lonnie had uh, had observed. And a lot of pictures were taken, as you know. And then uh, the local historian, Paul Harden, who you also worked with, and to learn that uh, Heineck was the one that was ordered by the, by the Air Force to confiscate all the pictures, everything that was taken by the newspapers, for, by newspaper example in Socorro regarding the case. It'd be interesting to, to see where all that photographic uh, you know, imagery is today. Because it wasn't, I, in, wasn't in Blue Book. You know that. I'm thinking, I'm thinking if some civilian comes into my newspaper office and says, I'm confiscating your pictures, I'm telling him where to go. That's right. <laughs> it's not, not right. going to happen. Well, you know, and, and, and like I said, you know, Socorro, is in, it's important. There are some questions to be asked about the way the investigation was handled, the way that the lost opportunities, and like I said, I, that's covered in Encounters in the Desert. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking beyond La Madeira, beyond Socorro, what else do you see as, a, as an important UFO case? Oh, uh, the, the, certainly the coin helicopter case from, um, is it October 73? Colonel Lawrence yes. Coyne, Mansfield, yes. Ohio. And uh, the, the fact that not only do you have as far as an experienced pilot and crew, but you also have the uh, the witnesses, the observers from the ground, seeing this green glowing object that uh, practically has a head-on collision with this helicopter. Air National Guard, correct? Yes. And uh, they think it's going to, there's going to be a mid-air explosion, so they go into a steep a dive to avoid collision, and all at once the object is hovering over them, and they are being lifted this green beam of light and just held there uh, as far as uh, throttling up, down, nothing had any effect and uh, they were helpless for that moment. And getting back even to class, that uh, what was his explanation for the coin case? That it was a bolide. Yes, well, the, the interesting thing is, in class quotes, a uh, he's, he doesn't identify who it was, but a helicopter pilot uh, discussing how this happened with, with class. We don't know anything about the helicopter pilot. We don't know what his training was. The difference is the, the um, Captain Coyne at the time, and I, and I should qualify, it was Army National Guard, not Air National Guard. Army National Guard. That's right. That's right. Yes, yes. We had, um, we had the same training. We went through the same flight school. I know exactly how it happened. I know exactly what was going on in the cockpit because we were trained how to do that. And one of the things is class said that the co-pilot, was it Jesse? Um, when they were in this steep dive, he had reached down to avoid collision with the ground and pulled up slightly on the collective. And yes. I say, no, that would have never happened. Right. What would have happened if Jesse felt they were in imminent danger, he would have taken command of the aircraft and said, I've got it. And Coyne, not knowing what Jesse may have seen, said, you've got it and released the controls. 
Yes. You do not, you would not, he would not have gone on the controls and made an alteration to the setting of the controls without alerting the other pilot. And it's a routine we was drilled into us so that, that, that you didn't have two guys fighting for control of the aircraft at the same time, which would be very problematic, or both guys letting go of the controls at the same time. So class's explanation was based on some interview with a helicopter pilot who may have not been an Army helicopter pilot mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and may, may have not had that training. But I could look at that and I could say, this is this is not right. So when Coyne says he had the collective full down and they were and they were still climbing, I got into a situation not unlike that, um, flying the slot position in a what we called an echelon right formation. And I was in chalk number six right behind lead. And my aircraft was beginning to float. I could not get it to go down fast enough to keep up with the rest of the flight. And I had the collective full down and I had the throttle rolled off. And the last thing I did was kick the aircraft out of trim to make it fall faster mm. to stay with the flight. So I understand the dynamics of flying in those situations and what you need to do. And in fact, we had a, a situation where I was the aircraft commander and my pilot was a, actually a first lieutenant. And he suddenly said, I've got it. And he took the aircraft and he dove to the, to the right. And he had seen out of the corner of his eye, he thought an aircraft coming at us. I had seen the aircraft and it was not, we weren't endangered at all, but he saw what he thought was something endangering the aircraft. And he took control, said, I've got it. I said, you've got it because I didn't know what he'd seen and let him take control. So you've, uh, the, the, the situation is this, that the class's explanation for the sudden climb of the aircraft is preposterous. It would not have happened that way. So, and it, it, and Class always fancied himself to be the uh, the next Donald Menzo. He was always trying to impress, you know, the scientific, uh, the, the, the science community. But what you described, it's as most pilots would encounter a downdraft that would suck you down to some degree. But in your case, it was almost like an aerial hydroplaning, where you like you were riding on a bubble that uh, you were just gliding. And well, the thing, the thing we found is that the tolerances, you know, you, you check the aircraft for tolerances, you know, the linkage and everything. And if the tolerances are dead on, you've got an aircraft that's very powerful. And if they're just, they're at the, the extreme end of the tolerance and the aircraft is somewhat leaker and you have weaker and you have to make compensations as the pilot for those sorts of things. And I was caught in a situation and I don't know why the aircraft was floating because the others were going down at the regular speed. And I was having all this to having to do all of these things to stay with the formation. And I couldn't break right or left out of the formation because I was surrounded by other aircraft. Oh, and normally we were in a trail formation and I could have, uh, um, broken one way or the other. I, 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 there was nothing I could do in that specific situation. So it wasn't a we of, got close to the ground and it all went away. So it wasn't a case even where the other aircraft were creating any air wash or, or turbulence or anything. It was just a natural phenomenon. It just happened to, to be where you you were at that time. It was it was just the way the aircraft operated. But the whole point of this is when Class was discussing the helicopter operations, he was he was completely off on it. And it's kind of like him discussing the things in Socorro where the mayor was going to make some kind of a tourist attraction. He's making up explanations to explain something that he didn't fully understand. Well, and his both remember that was one of the things that we always had that standard response with Phil because he would always come back, well, certainly they should have, certainly they would have, and I, and it was always, well, but they didn't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, we're gonna have to take our last break here. Uh, when we come back, we'll see if we can move away from Socorro. We seem to get sucked back into it. Um, see, if, see what Don thinks about abductions, maybe, ah. as, a, as a topic to go off on as well. And uh, yeah, I mentioned periodically, um, some of the other fine programs on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. Take a look at the uh, program listings at the uh, at the X-Zone Broadcast uh, website and uh, you'll find something that will be interesting to you. Uh, we will be back right after this talking about maybe abductions. So please stick around.
joined by Don Schmidt. I would tell you that he's written many books about Roswell, but we're trying to stay away from that topic. You had him. <laughs> but uh, moving right along, uh, when we went away, I mentioned that uh, we might talk a little bit about abductions because we don't do a lot of abductions on the program here. Um, I'm a little bit ambivalent about the idea of this alien abduction, and I think that that if there are abductions, it's more targets of opportunity rather than these longitudinal studies that uh, people claim where they're visited time and time again. So, Don, what's your opinion of the abduction phenomenon? I would tend to agree that uh, there's just nothing that interesting about, you know, the human species that after you pick us up a few times, you see that there's both male and female and uh, some of us, you know, have weight problems and other of us, you know, are, are a little loose as far as in the kibasa, so to speak. But um, beyond that, it, you know, it even harkens back to what uh, Dr. Heineck used to often suggest that if we'd have one good sighting a year, it would be much more suggestive of something off the planet as opposed to having sightings most every night, you know, in every quarters, you know, of the world. And I'm afraid that's become the situation as far as with these missing time. I don't even call them abduction because there's so many alternative you know, possibilities. And if it's something that happens in someone's home, in their bedroom, that type of thing, uh, chances are it's either sleep paralysis or you know, a reoccurring nightmare situation, that type of thing. I don't know if you've ever ex experienced sleep paralysis, but um, I did one time. And you swear someone's in the room, you swear someone's pushing down on you, you swear you're wide awake, but you're still fast asleep. But it, yet it's that real. You can't move, you can't cry out because your voluntary, you know, muscles are still shut down as you're in deep sleep and you're, as you're in REM. And um, so, so much of this has been contaminated, has been coached by UFO researchers through the years, a lot of leading questions that uh, have promoted something that uh, after all this time, if we don't have any physical evidence from abduction encounters, then what physical evidence is there? Well, I think the interesting thing is, uh, I was going to mention sleep paralysis. I investigated a case in 1976, I think it was, in Utah. And um, watching Jim Harder, who yes. was the APRO director of research, I think at the time, we, he, I brought him in because he could do the hypnotic regression. And he would tell me things like, people can't lie under hypnosis. Well, that's not true. That's not true. Um, and between sessions, he would talk to the, the witnesses about other abduction cases. Exactly. And this, this all came about because I'd written an article in uh, Saga's UFO report about an abduction in Argentina. And a woman wrote in and said, I know what happened here because it happened to us. And I, I got the assignment from Saga to go out to investigate the case. And uh, I could I could see harder. At the time, I didn't realize what he was doing. But the, the subtle leading of the witness, what, what do you see? Well, I don't see anything. Well, yes, you can see something. You need to go deeper into your sleep. They're trying to keep you from seeing it. I'm thinking, you, now you, you look at it and you say, well, they're just, you're manipulating the situation to get something, and there's something called pleasing the operator, where the subject of the hypnotic regression wants to please the person who is conducting the research exactly. and creates a situation to um, please the operator, so to speak. Yeah. So the hypnotic yeah. regression, I think, contaminates an awful lot of the uh, sightings. And, and, and as far as regression, there's only one reliable session in that. Because if you have, uh, have to uh, then work as far as additional regression uh, efforts, one tends to feed off of the previous. So it becomes more and more contaminated as you, you, you proceed with, uh, you know, these uh, hypnotic sessions. Uh, and I can remember some of our colleagues that uh, they would talk about up to 30 regressions before they would finally cross that line. Well, now I see the shadowy figure approaching the bed, and it's like, gotcha. That's what they were working towards, you know, accomplishing for all that time and effort. And uh, it, it's, it, it, again, it's a case of so often just wishful thinking and hoping that this will be, it's almost like the ambulance uh, chasing lawyers who always think that this is going to be 
the game changer. That it's the case that's going to finally, you know, re- you know, raise me up as far as fame and fortune. And what better arena to do it in than the abduction, you know, uh, encounters? Because it's just the ultimate, where you have an actual interaction between us and them. Do you, are there any abduction cases that you find plausible? I think would be the word plausible. I knew very, I knew Betty Hill well enough that I believed her. I believe that as even as much as Dr. Benjamin Simon still suggests that it may have been a shared dream experience, that there was not there wasn't really anything in the UFO vernacular at that time that they could have you know uh, fed uh, you know, the story from. They, um, you know, and you, you look back to the, you know, at that time, 61, an interracial couple, no less, hardly seeking, you know, uh, notoriety, publicity, you know, in, in the face of, uh, you know, their own living environment. And then they claim that they were abducted by a, by a, a UFO at that time. Uh, I, and for the fact that it, there was something tracked, it was, it was a Pease Air Force Base at that time. So there was something in the area. Um, but, but when you say there's, there was nothing to build on, there was an awful lot of science fiction out there, including the really god-awful uh, Killers from Space, in which the entire abduction scenario is l- laid out uh, yes, in I, that movie, including, including missing time, including the big-eyed aliens, including the mysterious scars. I mean, all the abduction elements were laid out in this 1954 movie. And I think it was. But we'd have to determine whether either Betty or Barney had even seen the movie beforehand. And that was obviously a question never asked of them. But uh, certainly if that would be established, that would be. And and, and the second the second point, there was a Twilight Zone episode called Hocus Pocus and Frisbee with Andy Devine. That is correct. In which he is abducted by the alien creatures that have sort of the same kind of faces described by Barney Barnett, for example. And on my blog, I've actually uh, looked at that sort of thing with a picture that um, Barney drew and a picture of the alien from Hocus Pocus and Frisbee from that Twilight Zone episode. So the elements, the cultural elements, if you will, were out there to be drawn upon. It does. It, it does tend to wash or water things down. Uh, as part of the investigation, certainly such uh, background checks would be necessary. But we would agree that at least back in 61, it was much more pristine. It was much more virgin territory back then. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And today you could take most any auditorium full of people, uh, 500 people, and you could regress them to uh, a UFO situation, and each and every one of them would describe an abduction scenario, because what we've read, what we've seen, we've all been contaminated. So well, there is no virgin territory any longer. Well, I was going to say, uh, if you um, watch The Simpsons, you know you know how contaminated things are when, when Homer is abducted by the aliens and he's preparing himself for the anal probe. Yes. And they say, we don't do that anymore. We don't do that anymore. So, so I mean, the point is, it, it it's filtered into the cultural... Uh, ethos to the point where even Homer Simpson <laughs> is aware of it. And I think that's the reason that both of us, we, we, we tend to go back. We tend to look at the classic cases of the past because much less chance that they were influenced, that they were contaminated by the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the zeitgeist of the time. And so at least if we want to even take the Hill case even a step earlier, we'd be talking about Vilas Boas and, and, and down in South America. And then the question, well, what was he influenced by? What was he reading? What did he observe? That type of thing. And in his case, there were medical after effects that were documented. So I, I, I would suggest that on, on one hand, you know, Five good cases that you might be able to point to. So you've got you've got V.S. Boas, you've got uh, Barney and Betty Hill. I'm sure you're thinking Travis Walton in that group. I would, for having been to the site, for having um, you know talked to Travis too many times about this, and his, his story hasn't changed. And the fact that, unlike so many others, 
under regression that he is has not confabulated anything, that he's not repeating anything he doesn't recall. There's nothing else there. It was as though during the, the five days that he clearly was missing in action, so to speak, that uh, there's no recall of that except for some of the earlier um, you know, descriptions that he made waking up and then being let out in that large hangar and the two human the Nordic appearing individuals, that type of thing. So um, as much investigators have tried to get Travis to fill in all the missing uh, time, uh, he's not fallen into that, into that trap. And, and let's let's say this for the record, that the, the movie Fire in the Sky is not an accurate representation of the Travis Walton abduction. Not by a long shot. No, no. Which thing. is what Mike Rogers told me personally a number of times. So we've got we've got now Travis Walton and you said about five or two other cases that uh, intrigue you. Well, a case that we even investigated locally that was referred to us by Bud Hopkins. And it was a daytime involving a 16 year old girl. And it was a Sunday afternoon, and she sees up ahead on the road what appears to be a work crew. And uh, they're all dressed in the same uh, one-piece coverall type of, of garment. But uh, there's no vehicle, no trucks, no equipment or anything. And if he approaches, she's going to meet with a girlfriend to go shopping. So there is a, a, a witness as to her two-hour delay and uh, the, the then reoccurring dreams and experience that she had thereafter and then not knowing that her husband had had a similar experience and then later her daughters are drawn into it for never having read or heard anything that it was a family secret and the fact that they were essentially all describing the same event so uh, i was very uh, very captivated by that because it um it, it was it was it affected the family um, a big divorce of total falling out as far as uh, estrangement of the daughters who, uh, you know, blame their parents that they got caught up in this, they got involved with this and that type of thing. So it's been a wonderful case study as to not necessarily the UFO abduction, but at least what the impression, what the very perception that you've had some interaction and what it does to the human psyche. Well, we're going to have to cut it off there, I'm afraid. Uh, is, is there some place we can read about this case, or, or, or is this something that hasn't been written up? Uh, it's a case involving Sherry uh, Wild. And um, is it, I'm trying to think of uh, the well, name. Well, let's do, let's do this, Don. If, if you can think of it, send, send me an email, and I'll put it up on the blog and link to the information for the people. Hey, Don, right. thanks, thanks for showing up. Appreciate your uh, time here. Very good, Kevin. I always enjoy it. Talk okay. to you soon. You have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, that was, of course, Don Schmidt. We've talked a little bit about uh, other aspects of the UFO field, and I think it's important to get into that once in a while. As I say, I will have more information up about this and try to get some additional information from Don about the case we just discussed uh, from my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com uh, for those of you who would like to follow up on that sort of thing. Next week, I'm going to be talking to David Mueller, Mueller, He's uh, been interested in triangular-shaped UFOs, and he did a book called um, you know, Triangular UFOs, uh, An Estimate of the Situation, where he outlines an awful lot of the information about this. Triangular-shaped UFOs, although it's become kind of the um, go-to shape of them now, you can trace some um, the history of them way back in the UFO phenomenon. So it's not something that just popped up. It's something that's been going on for a long time, but it's become the more prevalent, uh, I guess, shape of the UFOs. And after that, and uh, following that, I'm going to talk to Steve Bassett a little bit about um, disclosure in the next couple of weeks. I'll get uh, I'll hopefully up with Don Ecker and some other people about the history of the UFO phenomenon and where it's going and where it's been and that sort of thing. And once again, um, take a look at my blog, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Take a look at the Vietnam stuff, if that interests you at all. I'd be appreciate any comments you'd like to make or thoughts about that sort of thing. And I will mention that you have been listening to A Different Perspective on the X-Zone Broadcast Network. I'll be back in 167 hours. Thanks for tuning in. Thank mm -hmm. you.